Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll just read this section once again that we've been looking at. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we ask You now for Your Holy Spirit to help us. We pray that You would come and do what man can't do. And Lord, we confess that apart from You, we can do nothing. We ask You for a spirit of faith and power and love and of a sound mind. And uh, we ask You to open up to us the understanding of Your Word. You said that the entrance of Your Word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And um, we think of how Your Word is uh, a protection against error and... uh, It's given to us to make us equipped for every good work. And so we pray that You'd help us even today. Give utterance and give hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at this controversial and I believe often misunderstood last half of Romans chapter 7. And we have seen that there are three main views with regard to this section. First of all, the view that Paul is speaking here about a lost man, a man who is under the law and not yet converted, but not just any lost man. This is a particular kind of lost man, the man to whom the commandment has come. 
By the working of the Holy Spirit, he has come to see that the law is good, that the law is spiritual. And he desperately wants to keep the law, but he can't. He finds himself a prisoner of the law of sin that is in his members. Then secondly, second main view of this section is that Paul is speaking here of a Christian. And not only a Christian, but every single Christian. In fact, the most mature Christian, the most advanced Christian. In fact, he's speaking of himself at the time of writing. That's the second view. Pretty pretty broad uh, difference there. Pretty big uh, contrast between those two views. The third view is that Paul is speaking here of a Christian, but he's speaking of an immature Christian, a so-called carnal Christian, who hasn't yet, as they say, entered into Romans 8. Now, as most of you know... Um, The first view is the one that I have defended throughout this time, not only because of the total context here of chapter 6, 7, and 8, all three of them together, the total context, uh, but also because of the general description of this man that is given in the section itself. Who, Who is this man? Well, he's of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. He's powerless to break with sin. He's constantly referring to the law. He never refers to Christ. He never refers to the Holy Spirit one time. Uh, He's a prisoner. I'm just using his own words. He's a prisoner to the law of sin and his members, and he's looking for someone to deliver him. Now, all of those things, I think, uh, when you set them in the context that we've been looking at in Romans 7, Paul's talking here about the law. He's talking about uh, the the purpose of the law and the limitations of the law, what the law cannot do and why it, why it can't do it, the, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. He sums it all up when we get into chapter 8. But anyway, um, if this is really the correct view, then the question comes up as to why we need to learn about these two other views. And my answer to that is that if these two other views were only being taught by some kind of fringe elements out here on the edge of Christianity, then uh, we might not have to learn about them. But the fact is that many good and godly men have taught and continue to teach these two other views. And if you listen uh, very much to Christian radio, um, even some of the best men, if you listen, if you read some of the best books, you will encounter these two other views. And uh, the very fact that godly men teach these views shows that they have some things that are good and right about them that we need to understand. And also, uh, we need to, to uh, learn and profit from the negatives, too. There's some things about these views. If they're not what the Bible is teaching, you know there's going to be some things that are very hurtful about them, no matter how hard you try to keep from it. And uh, I think that uh, we'll see that as we go along. Last week, we looked at the second view. I'm going to get into that and review that in a minute. But first, I wanted to have Mason come up here and just share a little bit. And the reason I'm doing this is he was telling me about some of the things that have happened just this past week and some things that have happened in his own life in relation to these views of Romans 7. And the reason I want him to share this is... uh, 
just so that you would know this these things are not theoretical they ha- they get down to our lives and affect our lives and so I'll have Mason share for two or three minutes and then I'll come back to what we're looking at here in Romans 7. I thought it might be good to um, to share these things so we can understand the gravity of the things that we're dealing with here. Um, I think it was about a month and a half ago I when uh, Rachel and I went back down to Alabama to visit my family and to spend Christmas down there. I got to see one of my dearest friends that is from Atlanta. And just to give you a little background so you know this guy just isn't a run-of-the-mill professor of Christianity uh he he was the leader of he's the leader of the missions movement kind of in his area over in Atlanta he's been to Peru his he and his wife sacrificed greatly um for the kingdom and I mean he has such a passion he was one of the sole encouragements of my life when I was living in Birmingham and um when I when we were down there we were we were um we were in a coffee shop and just kind of talking and I could tell that he was really really beat down and really depressed and I really didn't want to press him I you know I was just if he wanted to share something I was going to let him share it well finally it came out you know that he had been struggling with some things and some sins and you know I could tell that he was just I mean the pressure on this guy was just incredible it was written all over his face and you know we got to talking about it and he said you know I just I know that I'm just so tired of fighting against this old man inside of me he said you know this every day this old man tries to come back and I keep trying to choke him out and he said but you know what the bible says oh wretched man that I am <laughs> and so I said well no wait a second and so I went back and started walking through the context of, you know, some of the stuff that we've been learning here. And he said, no, 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 man, that guy's a Christian. Haven't you heard that guy's a Christian? He had never heard that there was another interpretation of Romans 7. And so I left him with some of the things, um, you know, that we had that we had learned here. And he called me back three days later <laughs> and he was beaming. He said, man, the Lord opened my eyes to the fact that in Christ we are really a new creation. It's not just a theory that I really am new. And I'm talking about it's like years of this burden just fell off of him. And for weeks he would call me back talking about some new aspect of imagery. We're created in righteousness and true holiness. And and it's like this it's like he got delivered from this thing. Well, last week, this pastor, and uh, once again, this is not just your run of the mill pastor from Birmingham. This is another one of the guys that was really an encouragement to me, and we would meet from time to time and try to exhort each other. I haven't talked to him in a year and a half. And he called me up, and I could tell, man, he he was really, really heavy, and his voice was really low. And, um, you know, I was just asking him about, you know, the church and some things like that. And finally, he just got really quiet, and he was quiet for like three minutes. And it was really awkward, and he said, um, he said, I'm just so tired of it. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well... He said, I just got done. I can't remember if he's teaching through Romans 7 or studying through Romans 7, but he got to the end of it and he said, I just, I had hoped for more victory in life. He said, I keep struggling with these sins, but how could I expect to have more victory than Paul? I mean, look at him. He's doing what he doesn't want to do. He's not doing what he wants to do. He says he's a wretched man. He said, now I get, and he said, I, I think he said something to the effect of, I finally settled down to that's just going to be my life. <laughs> 
And I said, wait a second here. And so I went back through and started, you know, trying my best to talk about some of these things that we've been learning. And it was incredible. Through the course of the conversation, you could hear life starting to come back into his voice. And by the end of the conversation, he was rejoicing. And he once again, he he had vaguely heard that some fringe weirdos held the view that that the guy in Romans seven was not a Christian. He didn't understand that these things could actually be defended biblically. And it's what Paul was teaching. And this guy got freedom and liberty there. And even in my own life, I had um, I had listened to a long time ago. Um, a couple of years after I'd been a Christian, I'd listened to a dear brother and I'd misunderstood one of his statements to to be that I still had this old man inside of me and I had to choke this old man. And if I would just concentrate on how wicked I was that I would get free from my sin. And so I began to try to do that and I began to try to. Um, try to amass some laws around me and fence myself in from indulging in the flesh. And I started growing worse. Well, I turned to one of the Puritans. I don't know if all the Puritans kind of held this view, but this guy said, you need to read through the penitential Psalms at least one time a day. And at the end of every day, start focusing on how wicked you were all throughout that day. And if you do that, you'll get free from sin. Well, I did that, and I can promise you that does not work. I grew exceedingly, exceedingly worse, even to the point to where I was, I was willing to inflict pain on myself to try to get out from under this bondage to sin. And I was completely miserable and in bondage. And then the Lord sent a dear brother to Romania who was teaching on... Um, he taught on the law of Christ, but he on the ride there, he shared some things with me about regeneration. And Michael Durham also was teaching through Romans six and the Lord began to open my eyes. And for the first time, I understood the words fight of faith. They made all the difference in the world and the Lord lifted three, four years of, of burden and, and misery of of trying to stare at law and to, to try to amass all these fences to stop this just this war. And then all of a sudden it's like you're free. Just walk out. That's all you have to do. Just believe some things and walk out. And the Lord the Lord the Lord changed me there. And so I thought it might be good to share and I mean I could go on about uh, even other people I've talked to, but these are just a few instances of this is an epidemic. This is a widespread thing that people need to hear and it is matters of life and death even for true Christians. Well, praise the Lord. I think that uh, when we think about this second view that this is Romans 7 is talking about the Christian at his best, um, a lot of the men that hold to this view, especially the, uh, the godly men that we know of that are in leadership, um, it's not the idea that they themselves are in the state that Mason was in in this situation, but it's the idea that multitudes of people down, when you get down on the grassroots level, what you're dealing with, like when somebody becomes a new Christian or any time, I mean multitudes, multitudes of people 
are reading that, when they read about when they read Rome, the last half of Romans seven, they know on the gut level they know this guy's wretched and he's defeated. And if they're wretched and defeated, they take hold of that and they say this must be if this is Paul at his best. This, and they're not toning down the language of it and they're applying it to themselves. And that's I mean the devil will use that to cast you into the pit of despair. And so. Now, again, these things are very practical. Well, last week we looked in at the second view or what we would call the reform view or could call the reform view of Romans 7, and that is that Paul is describing himself at the time of writing Romans. And on the positive side, one of the things that we saw that was good about this view is the fact that it acknowledges and takes seriously the Christian's battle with sin. Now, some people that hold the third view that we're going to look at don't do that. And they actually say that Christians can be totally delivered from all sin and never have any trouble with it again. Now, that view will lead you to despair too. And either that or pride. And we'll be talking about that, Lord willing, as we go on. There was a fellow that came here to the campus, open-air preacher, Quite a few years ago now, but uh, he he and his wife were um, both out there preaching, and uh, she made this statement. She said, "I've I've never seen my husband sin for seven years." Well, he just sinned right there because he stood there and let her say that without correcting her. But uh, the fact is, if you have an idea that Christians never sin and that you've arrived at some state where you never sin, you're also deluded. And so um, we need to talk about that. And that's one thing that the reform view does do is that it treats seriously the fact of what sin is and that Christians still have a battle with sin. So that's one of the positives of that view, but on the negative side, we considered three things last week, and the the first one, which is the worst, is that Satan has used this view to plague multitudes of even true Christians with the idea that they have to be defeated by sin. And uh, again, after all, it's the idea if the Apostle Paul couldn't get victory in his own life, how do you think you're ever going to get victory? And the devil will tell you that. And um, the fact is that uh, if you believe that you have to be defeated by sin, you're going to be defeated by sin. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. You will be. You, uh, one of the first steps of getting victory over something, you're struggling with this thing, one of the first steps of getting victory over it is having your mind renewed to realize that this really is wicked and inexcusable and that you don't have to do it and that there are multitudes of true Christians who have been set free from this who don't do it. And as soon as your mind is renewed like that, and that that is a process during the Christian life, as you go on more and more, your mind is renewed, and you start seeing that this, you know, first of all, you accept this level of victory, and then you start seeing, you know, that thing that I've been doing there, that's not really right either. Christian doesn't even have to do that either, do they? And God moves you on to where you are renewed in your mind and you lay aside that. And then He shows you some other thing. And and it's a a progressive life of, of growth, but at the same time it's a life of victory because you're realizing more and more about things that you don't have to be anymore because that's not who you are anymore. So... 
Anyway, the the uh, the worst negative about this view of uh, that this is Paul at his best is that Satan has used it to keep people convinced that they have to be defeated by sin. Secondly, this view has led directly to the wretched man concept of the Christian life, where you spend your time concentrating on how sinful you still are, how evil your heart is, how far short you're still falling of being what a Christian should be. And the quote we read last week, that daily and hourly you groan, O wretched man that I am. Well, that's a wrong uh, emphasis. It's a wrong view of the Christian life, and it's not biblical. It's not at all what you find in the Bible. And then thirdly, the third negative about the Reformed view is that uh, if you try to avoid this wretched man concept of the Christian life, but you still believe that Paul is talking here about himself, uh, that some of the best men, this is what they're trying to do. They say, look, I, I know this wretched man concept of the Christian life isn't right, but I believe this is Paul talking about himself at the time of writing. Now, if you take that position... Then you have to tone down the language of the passage to the point that it's almost unrecognizable that it's even the same passage. Now let me just give you one example. Uh, instead of saying that this man is of flesh sold into bondage to sin, that he is a slave of sin, and this I'm not giving you something theoretical, I'm giving you something I read. What they say is, is no, actually he's a slave of righteousness, like it says in chapter 6. And normally, most of the time, he lives a life of victory, but sometimes he chooses to let sin reign in his mortal body. And at those times, he's defeated by sin. But by and large, he lives a life of victory. But sometimes he lets sin reign in his mortal body, even though he knows that he doesn't have to. Now, if you import all that, those ideas into this chapter, into these things that we've read, what you've got is something that Paul doesn't say anything about. It's almost unrecognizable. There's nothing here about the Holy Spirit. There's nothing here about victory. There's nothing here about letting sin reign in your mortal body. This guy's a slave. He's a captive to sin. He's a prisoner to the law of sin and his members. Now, <clears throat> before we go on then to consider this third view, which I'd like to consider briefly today, I want to take just a little time here to deal with some of the other passages that are often brought up to support the second view. Remember what the second view is. It's a, this is Paul writing about himself at the time he writes Romans. This is true of every Christian, is what they say. Now, there are other passages that are appealed to to support this view. And it's amazing, especially if you are defeated and beat down, I mean, the devil will bring to your mind every kind of passage in the whole New Testament about the, where this wretched man supposedly is, even though he isn't there. We were just talking yesterday about, uh, and I actually, Mason was saying that there had there have been guys that he knew that taught that Paul's thorn in the flesh was Rome, what he's talking about in Romans 7. In other words, uh, when he says, God gave me this thorn in the flesh to keep me humble, what that is is some sin in his life that he can't get victory over. Isn't that unbelievable? And uh, I got to thinking about it, and as I, as I recall, I did have that thought back in my early Christian life, and I remember people saying that. And it's been so long since it's just incredible to me to think about it, but 
Uh, the idea that Paul's thorn in the flesh, God gave me this sin that I can't get victory over to keep me humble. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? That anybody would hold to that. You know, people will actually say, well, you need, you know, God lets you have some sin just to keep you humble. Well, how much sin did Jesus have? He was the most humble person in the whole world. And like Ravenhill said, why not have a lot of sin and be real humble? You know? It doesn't have anything to do with it, with that at all. The thorn in the flesh was just that. It was something in his flesh to keep him low, that is, some kind of physical problem to keep him low before God and weak. Uh, another passage that's brought up, uh, in a group of passages actually, are those that talk about groaning. In Romans 8, Paul uh, says in verse 23, not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So you see, he's groaning, waiting for the redemption of his body, being free from this body of death and so on. The same thing as Romans 7, they say. But if you read the context here, uh, he's not talking about sin at all. He's talking about suffering and death and pain in the creation. And he actually says that the inanimate creation groans also. And so are we going to say that rocks and trees have indwelling sin, that they're groaning, trying to get rid of indwelling sin? See, it doesn't fit at all. And even the Lord Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is groaning. What is the groaning about? Because of death and and uh, sin in the world in an objective sense, the wickedness and all, and, uh, all the corruption in the world. And so the, the passages on groaning, if you look at them, they don't have anything to do with Romans 7, wretched man. They have to do with longing to, be, to, to enter into the new creation and to be set free from all the suffering, pain, persecution, all those things. But the passage that I want us to, to, to actually spend a little more time on is Galatians 5:16 to 26. So let's just turn over there. This is just kind of a, in a way, it's kind of an aside. Um, before we look briefly at this third view. But it's, this is an important one, very important aside. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, 
people refer to this passage and they say, see, this is the same thing he's talking about in Romans 7. You have this conflict, and he even admits defeat. Verse 17, he says, these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please or the things that you wish. So look, you know, you're trying to do good and you can't. You're defeated. And um, what do we say to that? Well, the first thing I would say is that these verses do describe a conflict. But it's totally different than the conflict in Romans 7. Because this is a conflict that the Holy Spirit has with the flesh. In Romans 7, there's nothing about the Holy Spirit at all. This is a conflict that the Spirit has with the flesh. And who do you suppose is more powerful, the Holy Spirit or the flesh? The Holy Spirit is more powerful, and that's exactly what Paul says here. He says, walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. In other words, this is a passage of victory, and that's what he says. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The whole passage is a passage of victory. And that means if you understand the last half of verse 17 as defeat, you've misunderstood the last half of verse 17. What does it mean? Well, he's not saying the Spirit is against the flesh so that you're not able to do the good you want to. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the Spirit is against the flesh to keep you in line, to keep you from following the desires of the flesh to effectually prevent you from being defeated. And uh, I just want to read a quote here from, from Albert Barnes, who incidentally takes a Reformed view of Romans 7. But this is what he says on this passage. The literal translation would be, lest what you will, those things you should do. Now that's the last half of verse 17. Lest what you will, those things you should do. This is simply a statement of fact. That statement is that in the mind of a renewed man, there is a contrariety of the two influences which bear upon his soul, the Spirit of God inclining him in one direction and the lust of the flesh in another. Now, that's just a big, hard way of saying that inside a Christian, there's two things. There's the flesh going one way and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit going the other way. All right? One of these influences is so great as in fact to restrain and control the mind and prevent its doing what it would otherwise do. When there's an inclination in one direction, there is a controlling and overpowering influence in another, producing a conflict which prevents it and which finally checks and restrains it, restrains the mind. There is no reason for interpreting this, moreover, as seems always to be the case of the overpowering tendency in the mind to evil, as if it taught that the Christian was desirous of doing good but could not on account of his indwelling corruption. So far as the language of Paul or the fact is concerned, it may be understood just the opposite. It may mean that such are the restraints and influences of the Holy Spirit on the heart that the Christian does not, does not the evil which he otherwise would and to which his corrupt nature, in other words, the flesh, inclines him. So he's saying 
read this passage. Why do we read this and say, oh, that's talking about defeat? Right in the midst of everything saying that the Holy Spirit will keep you from giving in to the flesh. See, it's just, it's, he's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The Spirit opposes the flesh. The Spirit's at work in the life of a Christian. The man in Romans 7, he's fighting against the flesh, and you can't do it because he's of flesh. But when you become a Christian, now the Holy Spirit takes over the battle, and it says in James, he's jealous over us. And he won't let you just go any old way. He'll see to it that you cannot follow those dictates of the flesh. And Paul even goes so far as to say those that are Christ have crucified the flesh. So you see, it's a passage of victory. If you want a parallel between this passage and Romans, you go to Romans chapter 8. Let's just turn back to that quickly. Romans 8 and verse... 12. Now here we've got the flesh and the Spirit contrasted. They're not in Romans 7, but they are here in Romans 8. And this is what he says. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything. You're not obliged to follow the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You're able to do that. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You want to know who a true Christian is? It's somebody that's crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, who's walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And isn't it amazing, back there in Galatians 5, Paul says, if, you, if you're if led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What, where in the world does he bring that up? Same thing as chapter 6, verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law. And that's the same reason that sin does have dominion over the guy in Romans 7 because he is under the law. You see? Okay, well... Uh, Enough on that. If you just look at the overall life of Paul, what's he like? Is he a wretched man? What is he like? Well, even in 2 Corinthians, which is one of the most personal books in the whole New Testament concerning what's really going on inside of Paul. I mean, he talks about being crushed down and perplexed and everything. What's he say? Well, he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ. That's the Apostle Paul in the midst of the worst things. Now, let me just read a couple passages from it. I mean, you want to know what Paul was like? He wasn't a wretched man bemoaning uh, the fact that he could not have victory over the flesh. It was just the opposite. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And again, thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. 
for we are a fragrance of Christ to God. See, that's this is the Apostle Paul. And uh, if you just look at his total life, he, it's, it's incredible. Well, uh, in, the, in the little bit of time we have left here, I just want to look briefly at the third view of Romans 7 so we could turn back there. Um, what is the third view? Well, the third view is that Romans 7 is talking about a Christian, but certainly not a mature Christian. And most certainly not the Apostle Paul himself at the time of writing. Rather, they say this is an immature Christian who's not yet passed into Romans 8, or they sometimes say he hadn't yet been sanctified, or he hadn't yet entered into the so-called deeper life. Now, what do we say about that view? First of all, positively, let's say this. At least it recognizes that this man in Romans 7 is wretched, miserable, and defeated. I mean, it takes it at face value. It doesn't tone down the language and try to say that this man here is uh, victorious most of the time or that he's uh, so holy that he's super sensitive to sin and so that's why he's wretched. Uh, It rightly recognizes that this man's life in general is characterized by defeat and wretchedness. So that's one good thing about this view. Secondly, second positive, this view holds that a Christian doesn't have to stay in a position of defeat and wretchedness. Christian doesn't have to, quote, live his life in Romans 7. Now, that's good. They believe that God has something better for his children than wretchedness and defeat. And to that I would say, Amen. And the Bible says, Amen. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. Third positive is that many Christians have had experiences where they enter into a new level. Almost, you might say, almost in one jump, they enter into a new level of victory and joy and uh, holiness in their lives. And we don't need to deny those experiences. But we do need to understand them in a biblical way and not make claims for those experiences that are not biblical. And Lord willing, we'll look at this more next week. But what are the negatives of the view? Now, remember what we're talking about. They say this is a Christian who's immature, hadn't yet passed into Romans 8. What's wrong with that? Well, the thing, big thing, number one, is that it ignores the whole context of Romans 6, 7, and 8. And if you read the context here, there's not three groups in Paul's mind. There's only two groups. Back in chapter 6, you were the slaves of sin. Thanks be to God, you've been set free, you've been made slaves of righteousness. There's just two groups. Romans 7, verses 5 and 6. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But what? But now, having been released from the law, we serve in newness of the Holy Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. See, two groups. And that's true all the way through. You get to chapter 8, the same thing. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. There's just one or the other. You're either in the flesh or you're in the Spirit. And you see, people that take this view, they have to say that Paul is teaching here, he's wanting to get across to us, that this is an immature Christian who hasn't yet passed into Romans 8. In other words, you've got to have some kind of rationale here or flow here. 
And you could say, well, that's an immature Christian that's struggling with sin, and, you know, it fits pretty well. But it, there's got to be some kind of flow as to how he's explaining this whole thing. And the fact is, is there's no passing into Romans 8. Romans 8 is a Christian, not a victorious Christian. It's just a Christian. There's no condemnation. How's he started out? There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's not a special type of Christian. So the whole context is not teaching this at all. That's the first negative. Second negative is that this view lends itself to the so-called carnal Christian teaching. And what is that? Well, the carnal Christian teaching goes something like this. Here's a person who's a Christian, and he has Christ in the heart, but self is still on the throne of his life. Now, if you've ever seen the illustrations, you've got a picture, you've got a circle here, and there's a little chair in the middle there on the inside in the in the life. That chair is the throne. And there's an S on the chair. That self is on the throne. And there's your circle with self sitting on the throne. And outside is a little cross. Outside of the circle is a cross. And that's Christ. that represents Christ. And they say, that's a lost man. Christ is on the outside of his life. Self is sitting on the throne. He's lost. Well, everybody agrees on that. Then there's a second picture. And this has a circle and a throne. And self is still sitting on the throne, but the cross is inside the circle now. Christ is in the life, but self is still on the throne. They say that's a carnal Christian. And then there's a third circle over here, and there's still the throne on the inside, but now the cross is on the throne. Now Christ is on the throne. Now what's the translation of that? All right, you can be a Christian. You can have Christ in your life. And we're not talking about some temporary deal. You may do that your entire life. You're just a carnal Christian. And what it boils down to is, is you still run your own life. I mean, self's on the throne, right? You still run your own life, but now you're going, you're saved and you're going to heaven. You've accepted Christ as your Savior, but you just haven't, quote, made Him your Lord. Now, what's wrong with that teaching? Well, what's wrong with it is, is that it will damn people that accept it. Because it's a lie that you can be saved and live your life in sin and live your life for self and still go to heaven. See, that's a lie. It's not possible. It's not optional whether Christ is on the throne of your life. Now, I think that teaching has damned more people in the last hundred years. I think it's the most destructive false teaching that there is in Christianity. I believe that. If there was anything that I came... If I came into a, a typical church setting, if there was anything that I think would be the most important thing to preach, it would be what is the nature of true conversion. When a person becomes a Christian, the Bible does not say that Christ is in their life, but self is on the throne. That's not true. He says, if you won't deny yourself and come after me and take up your cross, you're going to perish. That's just all it is. So, when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 3 about these Corinthians being carnal, he's not... He's saying they're acting like lost men. A Christian can act in a carnal way. In fact, every time you sin, you're acting in a carnal way. You're acting like a lost person. 
But that's a far cry from setting up this permanent third category of people that live just like they always did, but now they're saved. See, that's the, the falseness of this carnal Christian view. And, and this view of Romans 7 lends itself to that. They say, well, you know, you're a true Christian, but you're just in Romans 7. You know, you're a carnal Christian. And it's optional whether you ever want to be anything but a carnal Christian. You know, you could be that way your whole life, and you won't get any mansion on Main Street, but you'll be in heaven. That's the way the thing is taught. And I have talked to bunches of people in my lifetime that are just as lost as they can be, and they think they're Christians, and you start talking to them about righteousness, and they call it legalism, and you start talking to them about what it is to be a Christian, and they say, I'm just a carnal Christian. I just live a life of, for self, with self on the throne, and I'm still going to go to heaven. Well, um, you know, what they're saying is, in the language of Romans 6, is I'm still a slave of sin. I'm still a slave of sin, but I'm going to heaven. And that's the opposite of what Paul says a Christian is. Last thing is that this view lends itself to making a separation between justification and sanctification. And the teaching I'm talking about here goes something like this. Well, you're a Christian now. You're justified. But you're still in Romans 7. And what you need is to be sanctified. You need to have an experience of sanctification. This is a one-time, you know, where you move over into Romans 8 and uh, you need to get sanctified or have a deeper life experience or a second work of some kind. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, it implies that you can be justified without being sanctified, and that's not possible. Because as soon as a person is justified at that moment, they're also regenerated, they're also sanctified. The moment you become a Christian, you are called a saint. You're sanctified, it says in 1 Corinthians, sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're a saint the moment you become a Christian. That means that you've been made radically new on the inside. You've been set apart. You're holy. And the whole rest of the Christian life is growing into practicing what you've become. And that always happens. He says back in chapter 6, he says, having been freed from sin and become slaves of righteousness, what? You have your fruit unto holiness, unto sanctification. That's the description of a Christian. And the end, everlasting life. There's no separation possible between justification and holiness. Look at it, look what it says in Hebrews. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. If you make a separation between the two, you're saying, well, you can see the Lord, but never be holy. Not possible. And so, every Christian is sanctified at the moment they become a Christian. That is, they become saints, they have a new nature, they're born again. And then that um, begins to work itself out in practice in their lives as they become progressively more and more holy in practice. Now, sometimes there are jumps in holiness. and I mean, crisis experiences where a person moves to a new level of victory. But that's different than putting it all in that and saying, look, you have this experience of sanctification, now you're perfect, 
now you don't sin anymore and so on. Now, Lord willing, we want it next time. This, I think next time will be the last time on Romans 7. Some of you will breathe a sigh of relief. But Lord willing, we'll go on next time and try to tie together some of these various views that we've been looking at regarding the Christian's relationship to sin. Does the Christian have to sin? Is it possible to live without sin? What is the biblical definition of sin? Can we have victory over sin? So on. Now, a lot of these questions, there's not... Here's another one. Can you go one minute without sinning? That's the one that often comes up. And as you begin to think about these things, the answer that you give to it has some very far-reaching implications. And we want to look at both sides of these things and try to understand biblically what we're talking about. So, Lord willing, that will be the next message. And then we'll get on into... We'll, we'll pass over into Romans 8. <laughs> Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for these wonderful truths that You have made us new creatures in Christ, that You've crucified the old man and that You've raised us up to walk in newness of life. And that it is possible not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And that it is possible by the power of Your Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. And we thank You, Lord, that You gave Yourself for us that You might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Yourselves a people, a special people, zealous for good deeds. And um, we thank You that whatever the sin is that we're facing even now, that there's more wonderful victory and deliverance and help in that area than we can even imagine. And we pray for the renewing of our minds. We pray that You'd help us to lay aside the practices of the old man and put on the practices of the new man, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Help us this day, this afternoon, to do that, to present our members to you, our our lips, our tongues, our eyes, our brains, our hands our feet, everything, Lord, help us this day to present ourselves to You as a living sacrifice and uh, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's be dismissed and continue our fellowship together.